Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Welcome to Beer Me on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Every week, I will have a different guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world. From brewers, importers, educators, this will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. So, I'm very, very excited for this show. Uh, We have had the DC Homebrewers Club on the show a handful of times, and it's always some of my favorite shows because the DC Homebrewers Club are some of my favorite people. Very warm, very welcoming people in beer, and I think homebrewing is a really, really, really great way to kind of dip your toes into a industry and an artistry uh, that is constantly changing, constantly evolving, and really exciting. So I reached out to the DC Homebrewers Club, and I am very grateful today that Peter Jones, he is the Education and Competition Committee Chairman um, for the DC Homebrewers Club, as well as part of the Lost Loggers Empire. <laughs> um, uh, Jake Grover, he is the Events Committee Chair for the DC Homebrewers Club, agreed to come on. Thank you, Jake. And then they brought their friend, who is who has been an avid homebrewer for over a decade, uh, Rob Fink. He is the lead brewer at Jailbreak Brewing Company in Maryland. Hello. Hello. So thank you all for coming by on this very, very hot (laughs) Sunday (laughs) in the middle of January. Our pleasure. So before we dive in, um, did you guys drink anything fun recently in the past couple days, in the weekend, anything like that? I uh, joined uh, or, or visited Revelers Hour just across the street here oh, on, yeah. uh, on Friday. Just opened up. Uh, yeah, great, great uh, wine selection. I was actually surprised they. I didn't order this, uh, but I saw that they had uh, a Pin Druid spontaneous beer on their on their bottle list. Nice. Uh, which I don't think I've ever seen one of those uh, in the city. Um, guess guess how much it, it was uh, it was going for 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 one bottle. It was it seven fifty? Yeah. They're they're spontaneous uh, uh, goose. I don't know, like forty five bucks. Eighty eight dollars. Wow. Yeah. So good for those guys. Yeah, good for them. Worth, I think, worth everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely for sure. Um, I've only had Pendruid at like festivals and stuff like that. I've never just like seen it on a menu. Yeah. If you haven't been to their brewery, it's definitely worth going to as well. Oh yeah, they do. um, Like the fermentation tanks over like open fire and stuff like that, right? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. So um, this is a restaurant coming from the same group that brought us Tail Up Goat. Correct, yeah. So Definitely delicious. delicious. Yeah, Yeah. delicious pasta for sure. (laughs) Definitely worth worth visiting. Nice. Very cool. Um, Rob, what about you? Um, I recently had a a bunch of beers from Wisconsin brought Mm -hmm. back um, from a coworker who visited over the holidays. Um, I don't remember the name of the beer in particular, but it was a New Glarus... Um, pale Bach, like a Hellas Bach, I guess. Not quite a Maybach, not as toasty, but mm-hmm. it's a 12-ounce can, and it was really delicious. Nice. Okay, so this is my prediction, is that Bachs are coming back. 
like I think you had like the wave of like hazy IPA, you had fruited sours, you got pastry stouts, we're seeing more lagers, and I think people are gonna like dive back into like Doppelbox and stuff like that. I think those are gonna get sexy again. Or at least like I'm putting that out into the world and hoping that it brings it back to me. I mean that would be great. Uh, <laughs> Rob's trying to do that single handedly. <laughs> yeah, single handedly. Ironically enough, Doppelbox were the style that got me into beer in general. Oh, okay. Um, back when the brick scaler was around, like in the mid, you know, 2005, 2006, I would go to OG the list. OG beer have, haven yep, of DC. I would go down the list. I would create a list of 10 beers because they would probably have three or four of them. And uh, just drink nothing but German Doppelbox for like the first <laughs> three months I was in beer, into beer. And granted, it was also like July. Um, so that was a, possibly a foolish decision to drink Doppelbox in the middle of the summer. But Follow your bliss, man. Yeah. yeah, you do you. Okay, so we'll figure out some kind of marketing scheme, we'll hire a PR company, and we'll make Doppelbox sexy again. Yeah, no season for Doppelbox. You can drink yeah. it in the summer. Apparently. <laughs> there you go. Tagline. Done. Done. <laughs> uh, Jake, what about you? What are you drinking lately? Uh, had taken a few days off from drinking at the start of the year, about 10 days off, which okay. of course feels like uh, an eternity mm-hmm. when you're used to drinking beer almost every day. Yeah. Uh, so broke that fast on Friday um, with a celebratory bottle of Cantillon Fafoon. Yeah, strong. About 10 years old. Uh, had aged interestingly, let's mm-hmm. say. Uh, not one of the finest aged Cantillon bottles I've ever had. A little bit of bleach chlorine <laughs> notes in there. Mm-hmm. The fruit held up, but uh, some real funky evolution. Of That's the one they do with apricots, correct? Uh, apricots? Yes. yes. Yeah. So, okay. All right. I see that. Those, those can kind of morph. Yeah, but we're back. Back we're on back. the beer train. <laughs> back on the beer train. Did you find anything particularly delicious during your 10 days of uh, beer hiatus, maybe? Actually, my resolution this year is to not buy any beer at all. Okay. To drink the cellar. Um, drink the which cellar. These guys have both been in my basement. It's pretty ridiculous and uh, could probably last me a few years. Okay. So bring down those stocks a little bit. Nice. You're not like, you know, one of those fools agent IPAs or something like no. that. You professionally <laughs> well, you know I, I, I might have a hop slam or two in there just for funsies to break oh, out. Oh, yeah. Because it turns into a barley wine after a couple years anyway. So <laughs> what the heck? That, that's a point of contention. <laughs> so. um, yeah, actually, last night. I was hanging with uh, some ladies who are um, definitely really knowledgeable in wine, um, and I was, you know, kind of trying to force them into the beer train. Um, so I brought them a uh, Lost Abbey Saver Sin, and that's the one that they made with blood orange and guava. So you know, really high acid, very fruity, but like they mellowed out a lot of the the, huh. the super. Like it wasn't like vinegary. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was great. It had been chilling in my beer cellar for I don't know a couple of years now, and um, yeah, it was great. It was like a hit because everyone there drank wine predominantly, and so it was like a nice little like gateway drug. And they were like, oh yeah yeah I like this. I was like great welcome. Yeah, because it's you know that that kind of sour beer often does you know is, is something that uh, wine drinkers can get into and kind of evaluating the acidity and the fruit and yeah, yeah. that's awesome it was kind of like we had just finished the Sauvignon Blanc we were about to dip into the reds and I was like whoa, whoa hold on before yeah. we go all the way let's let's sneak a beer in there I had also brought like um what should we call it uh brewery Alvin I had brought like one of their like super funky sour things and mm-hmm. we never got to that which I think was probably for the best I think that was too far too far um but anyway so the whole reason why i brought you all here um is to talk about homebrew um 
But the addition of Rob is that we can talk about homebrew versus commercial brew. So we can start with anybody, but let's first start about the ingredients themselves. Um, how are they different? How are they similar? I mean, obviously you're using the same base ingredients to make a beer, but how is it different commercial versus homebrew? Yeah, so I think um, having done a few collaborations with uh, breweries as, as part of my Lost Loggers side, as well as obviously homebrewing a lot, it's, it's really interesting to see, one, how the ingredients for homebrewing has changed over the time that I've been brewing. You know, now we can, as homebrewers, we can get all sorts of, uh, of grains, you know, vitamin, like the best kind of grains that, that uh, a lot of the commercial brewers have access to for, you know, decades. Um, as well as that, the hops, I think, have grown, uh, really improved dramatically the um, ability to get some of the sexier hops that uh, previously brewers just got access to, as well as the freshness of those hops. Um, so... First of all, it's you know you can make on a homebrew level some of the same types of beer and quality of beer as, as you can on a, a commercial level. Um, when you're sourcing ingredients as a homebrewer, I mean, of course there are homebrew shops. So first, I'm going to ask you to recommend to our listeners what are some good homebrew shops in the area. But secondly, um, is it more prevalent now to order things online? Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, and some people just don't have access to homebrew shops close. I mean, even I don't have a car, so it makes it difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, riding your bike up to three stars can be a pain in the butt. Um, so yes. having it delivered to you uh, is, is hugely convenient. Um, and so a lot of people never even leave their house and have it all brought to them. So what's your favorite place to order um, homebrew ingredients like malts and hops and things like that and yeast? I would say I mostly order hops just because there's so much cheaper bulk. Uh, places like... Uh, hops Direct, mm -hmm. Peterbaugh Farms, um, places that have the cutting edge hops, but then you can get a couple pounds. Uh, most homebrew shops only carry an ounce or two, and it's prohibitively expensive, or at least much more expensive than buying online. Okay. Grain's a little bit different, and it costs a pretty penny to have a 55-pound uh, sack of grain delivered to your door, uh, so that might be something where I'd get a car and drive up to the homebrew shop. Ah, uh, okay. All right. And so you, one of your favorite homebrew shops is the one at Three Stars? Well, I don't think we have much in the way of selection. I'm pretty sure that's yeah. the only one in D.C. Um, so yeah, there's thankfully, one in Arlington, right? There is, yeah. The, the brew shop? The yeah. brew shop, yeah. And but, I think that that's pretty decent as well. And then my local homebrew store yeah. in yeah. Seven Corners? And, and, yep, in Falls Church here, yeah. And that's that was the one that I have gone to for a long time. And I think they've improved dramatically over the past couple of years. They kind of expanded into another... Uh, shop next or another space next to them and, and improve both their size and selection and customer service. All right, so people out there listening, if you need a new idea for a business in Washington, D.C., open a centrally located, metro accessible homebrew shop. You're going to get three stars mad at you now. <laughs> I, I will, should also mention. I love you guys, sorry. <laughs> uh, Maryland Homebrew Store in Columbia is probably the biggest in the area. Mm -hmm. Fantastic selection, super knowledgeable, and they'll actually ship. I believe free shipping on most everything, and that gets here in a day or two super quick. So if I need something that I can't easily access, they're my go-to. Does it get expensive as a home brewer to like, um, you know, you, you're constantly buying beers and selecting beers and stuff like that, but do you get like, you know, like designer hops and you're like, all right, I'll splurge. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Prohibitive. Sure. <laughs> Just like anything else. Yeah. Especially when like... Jake was mentioning shipping 55 pounds sack of grain mm -hmm. is not cheap. Uh, plus the cost of the, you know, the grain itself. Um, 
though you know at the end of the day i think the cost per bottle of beer is basically the same it can be it can it can definitely vary from a little bit more than you're typically paying for uh commercial beer to way less um just depending on the style of beer you're brewing and the cost of the ingredients you know a cream ale is can be extremely cheap per Mm -hmm. you know gallon or so or whatever metric you're using Uh, but if you're you know doing a crazy hazy ipa or something where you're aging a sour beer in a barrel for a long time that's just like the commercial versions of those styles are going to be expensive uh so is the the cost uh, on the homebrew level I gotcha. I would say it's a misconception uh, that that homebrewing is that much cheaper. I, I get mm-hmm. that question a lot. That's probably one of the top three questions I get. Oh, you must save so so much money. Eh, not really. We don't get the same uh, discount on scale as commercial brewers. But that's not really why we're in it. Yeah. We're in it to do interesting things, experiment, um, do things that commercial breweries may not be able to, or perhaps it's not cost effective. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of it go crazy add three pounds of hops even though that doesn't make any sense add five pounds per gallon of fruit even though that doesn't make any sense um do something different because if you're doing that commercially you go out of business pretty quickly yeah okay so you said that was one of your top three questions you get what are the other two questions that you get how long does it take okay and that varies depending on style yeah that's a difficult question to answer yeah well about a week up to three years depending on what you're (laughs) trying to do and then uh, how much does it cost to get into it? Or how mu- what do you need to start? Oh, okay. Of course, my answer is, well, you can spend as little or as much as you want. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can get a kit for like 40 bucks, you yep. know, like a little gallon kit off Amazon. Or you can... You can use buckets you have laying around the house. I mean, you could probably piece together a kettle, uh, just a pot you have mm-hmm. lying around the house. It's pretty easy to cobble something together. Or you can drop thousands upon thousands of dollars, and I know people that have automatic uh, homebrews kit oh like pico brew and, yeah, and stuff like that, or yeah. even like the almost more commercial style homebrew size uh kits like the what is it micro micromatic uh, micromatic yeah some of those uh, sabco systems yeah, that's like that are that's automatic. six grand yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. rob's got some fancy gear you got somewhere in between a homebrew setup and a commercial yeah setup. there's um it's grown organically over the years but i started like the same way everyone does on their stovetop um, at least in this area, because you know I didn't have a, a yard or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I mean I've got pumps and some other things that I've tacked onto the apparatus, um, largely due to now finally having some space to do that. But also, um, that's what I've learned from commercial settings and incorporating some of those elements into the homebrew setup. They're not like duplicate, duplicative, but mm-hmm. they're, they're, they've been massaged in such a way I can make it work on the homebrew scale. So real quick, we have a couple of beers kind of sitting here on the table. Very, very tempting. Uh, you guys want to crack one of them open? Yeah, sure. I want to start on the lighter side. Okay. So, uh, so I have a bastardized version of a guz here. So a few different... Three different years of Lambic. Um, I don't pretend that this is a Belgian Lambic, and people get very up in arms about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not spontaneous. Um, I think spontaneous is for suckers, unless you happen to have a urban farmhouse in Brussels. Uh, so, man, I, you're throwing down. You're like, <laughs> yeah, okay. So, uh, what about all those mobile cool ships people have? Don't, don't get me started on Amlam, American <laughs> Lambic. 
Um, is that even a term, though? It is a term. Yeah. And so uh, some people pulled it off. I, I just don't think it stands up to the real thing in terms of the the flavors that we know and love and, and believe to be lambic. Um, and so I cheat, throw in a primary strain, throw in a mix of bugs, and then take my favorite Cantillon or Fontaine bottle and add it because I know that that's what works and that's what tastes good. Um, you can take a gamble and try mm-hmm. and do spontaneous. I think it's highly likely you're not going to like the results. So for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with spontaneous fermentation, anyone want to do a little quick sure. little yeah. blurb? So, our education chair right here. <laughs> so uh, as Jake mentioned, the urban Brussels farmhouse, uh, reference to Cantillon and, um, and their cool ship where they... on colder nights of the year that you know the right temperatures uh they will open up their essentially windows at the top floor of their um their brewery they have a, a wide shallow pan where they let the beer sit and then the uh bugs that are just ambient ambiently in the air the the bacteria will fall on that um that unfermented beer and that's the the bugs that will then ferment that beer as mm-hmm. opposed to adding one adding uh per- you know particular set of beer um, bacteria or uh, yeast. Yeah. So, uh, and, and for listeners who haven't seen this, is it basically like picture an attic space and imagine that entire attic space filled with like a copper pan that fills the entire space that's probably about a foot tall. Right. And just that whole thing of beer is just chilling out there and the windows are open and whatever is naturally occurring in the air, that's going to inoculate. It's like a huge kiddie pool, but for beer yeah. that you want to get sour. And just to be clear, kiddie pools are equally as bacteria-ridden as those sour beers. Okay, so let's try this. Um, cheers. 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 Damn, man, you're really good at this homebrewing stuff. It's possible. Yeah. Um, so highly effervescent. You're going to get some lemony notes, um, medium assertive acidity, uh, pretty mineralic, funky really complex this has been in the bottle about a year um will age up to 10 15 years yeah yeah it's definitely definitely great uh i, I would say jake is one of the the dc homebrewers uh better sour brewers uh so definitely excited when when you, when you said you were bringing some of your uh your sour uh beers today yeah so you know for listeners who are trying to maybe get started on that um, homebrew, tra- homebrew train. This is not your first. This isn't the first style you attempt. Probably not. No. In fact, it could go very, very wrong. Yes. I, you could potentially poison yourself. I did uh, try spontaneous early in our uh, my brewing career uh, with a friend who lived uh, just off US 50. You know, one of the things they suggest put put a oh the know, terroir there is yeah right beautiful the uh, mm. you know they suggest oh, just put some. Uh, unfermented wort in a like a mason jar with a little cheesecloth over it so you don't get bugs actually in your um, sugar solution uh, put it under you know if you have a fruit tree that's a nice terroir if you have like some flowers that's mm-hmm. a good good spot uh, and then you just kind of you know try a bunch of uh try and ferment different beer with that and see what turns out well because it's really is a crapshoot uh, all the beer that we fermented mostly just tasted like asphalt you know that uh, US 50 terroir so it's like Jake said, it's it can go very poorly. Uh, we didn't kill ourselves, but it's uh, it's something that it did not taste good. Yeah, but did you die? <laughs> did not die. <laughs> that's not the bar that you want to clear no, with homebrew. <laughs> no, that's not the bar. So, 
Um, Rob, we kind of started touching on this a little bit. So you made the transition from home brewer to professional brewer, and you had mentioned that there were um, a couple different things that you learned from commercial brewing that allowed you to tweak your homebrew system. What was uh, what was one of those? Uh, the, the biggest thing was a recirculating pump. Um, so I started uh, professionally at the district chop house here in D.C., Chinatown, under Barrett Lauer. Um, that particular brewery set up um, was a two-vessel system, so it was a combination mash lauder ton and then a boil kettle. Um, the combination mash lauder ton had its own pump, and then the kettle has its own pump. Um, but in terms of, um, like after the mash rest was done, you know, it, the pump with the, associated with the mash lauder would recirculate the beer, Vorloffing the beer, to clarify it. Um, doing that with a pump uh, at home uh, was kind of like a game changer. Um, so just to kind of clarify this for, for people that, that maybe don't know what you're talking about here, because you're using a lot of very technical words, which we appreciate. Um, but so basically, you have the material in the mash tun that's, that's kind of created a raft, right? Like it's kind of, it kind of settled. There's a little bit that sells on the bottom, and then there's yep. some that sits on the top. Yep. Kind of like when you're making a soup, or same thing with, with producing wine. Um, and with wine, you have to take some of the liquid from the bottom and pump it over to the top, and you do a pump over or a push down or, or whatever they call it, because I'm really rusty on my wine knowledge. Punch down. There we go. Thank you, sir. Um, so this is a mechanism that essentially does that for you without having to physically do it. Yeah, it's not like punching down um, okay. necessarily, but it is performing a recirculation. Um, that's basically to uh, clarify the wort before it gets run off to the kettle. Um, so you're not um, carrying, you're minimizing the particulate that you're mm -hmm. carrying over to the kettle. Okay. So you're ending up with a much clearer product. Correct. That like crystal clear, beautiful Pilsner, you know, that's yeah, In what the case of Pilsner, yes, yeah. you would want the runoff to be clear at that point. Yeah. Or, you know, a, a hazy IPA is going to look one way, an imperial style will look, you know, jet black. But um, there's actually even a big difference um, if you're running off an imperial stout and you haven't adequately recirculated, um, it's still going to be chunky, just like anything else. Mmm, chunky. Oh yeah, <laughs> So, uh, is Doppelbach now your favorite beer to brew? I know that's a cliche question, but I have to ask it, right? Like, what do you? It isn't. What no. do you? What do you enjoy brewing? Um, hoppy beers. Mm -hmm. Clean from an clean fermented hoppy beers um but yeah i mean i like everything though too like at at jailbreak we have a four vessel system um we have a mash mixer a separate lauder ton a boil kettle and a uh, whirlpool vessel um so sometimes when we do brew lagers we retrofit the kettle to accept a decoction um and set since each of the four vessels has its own individual pump, we can then they they, go, they can go forward and reverse. Mm -hmm. um, so we use the reverse setting on the boil kettle pump to send a portion of the mash back to the other the rest of the mash that's resting to do decoction. So we can boil it and then achieve a temperature change. Um, that's awesome. Um, so we're going to snap over to the education chairperson, and you're going to explain decoction to people who don't know what that means. <laughs> yes, so that's a, a technique that um, I really associate with uh, sort of the Czech brewers, but German brewers as well, lager brewers in general. And back, I guess we'll say back in the day, 
it was much more difficult to modify malts um, than we ha have the ability to, ability to do that today. So the, the malts, I guess you could say they had a lot more protein in them, and, uh, and decoction was a way you could kind of break down some of those proteins as well as you... you so here's the process. You, uh, as, as Rob was mentioning, you actually want to boil a portion of the malt, and uh, then you add that boiling portion back to the malt, uh, the main malt body, and, and it raises the temperature up a few degrees. Um, so you, know, you have different steps, different temperature steps in mashing, and so you kind of, each time you decoct, each time you boil, let's say like a third of the mash, mm -hmm. it's going to raise that temperature up a few more degrees and hit new temperature levels, which is, uh, is going to create better uh, um, environments for the malt to, the enzymes in the malt to um, achieve the type of uh, body and sweetness uh, in the final product that you want. Um, so on the homebrew scale, this is pretty easy. You just have another, you know, big pan and uh, or big um, kettle and you take out a third of the malt and you put it over the fire and you let it boil and then you dump it back into the, the, the main mash and uh, so it's, it's a little easier in some ways on a homebrew level depending on your, your actual setup. Um, a lot of craft breweries don't have the right setup unlike Jailbreak which I think is kind of rare compared to most uh, craft breweries. Yeah it's just the the beauty of a four vessel system if we had a three vessel system um It'd be much more difficult, especially the four vessels basically allow you to do many uh, more turns in one day, basically, um, because you're blanking one vessel and the next batch is coming right behind it if you time things appropriately. Um, but when we do a lager that's decocted, it'll be like a single brew because that would be a really, really long day. <laughs> Obviously, when you're bringing up even a small portion of the mash to boiling, that takes that much more time and... Um, so that's why, you know, when you have a triple decocted uh, lager, it takes like three times as much time to, to mash that beer as it would for just a single, uh, not a not decocted uh, beer. Yeah. Time, money, labor, yep. all that, all that jazz. Uh, you guys want to break open another beer? Let's do it. Do you want to do a, maybe a jailbreak beer? Sure. Would be advantageous to rinse. <laughs> yeah, probably with the, with a little water there. Um, and for those of you just tuning in, uh, I'm sitting down with Peter Jones. He is the Education and Competition Committee Chairman for the D.C. Homebrewers Club, also part of the Lost Loggers Empire. We have Jake Grover. He is the Events Committee Chair for the D.C. Homebrewers Club. And very happily, we have Rob Fink. He is the lead brewer at Jailbreak uh, Brewing Company in Maryland. So we are about to try a, a Jailbreak beer here in cans. Am I am I late to the party or are cans newer? Absolutely, you're late to the party. <laughs> I mean, cans are newer in the grand scheme of things, but they. No, no, I'm saying cans for jailbreak. I feel like I've, oh. I've, I've, I haven't seen jailbreaking cans, or maybe I am like super late to the party. Then. I mean, our our DC distribution is lackluster, to be honest, and mm -hmm. everyone at the brewery would agree with that. It's just I've a, always seen I've always seen jailbreak on draft. That's all. Yeah, I've, there's I've, it, there's more on draft package um, in DC is. A little more difficult. It just depends. Um, it's just a... It's largely a, a distributor complexity that is can be um, burdensome from an economic standpoint. So, okay. Uh, this is a little off topic um, and maybe not 100% in your realm. So if it's not in your realm, let me know and we'll move on. So I had a listener actually write in to me or, or, or speak to me 
uh, with a question, which, by the way, listeners, you are more than welcome to do at any point. Reach out on social media, reach out on email. I'm happy to answer any and all questions. But he asked, um, when a brewery is expanding and they have the decision to start distribution in different states or different areas or different parts of the world, mm-hmm. um, what does that look like, right? Like, how do you make those choices? And, you know, I kind of gave him the answer of like, well, you know, you've got places, you know, that only want to distribute within a certain mile radius within the brewery, and then everyone kind of has to just come get it. And then you have brewers that really want to make it in certain markets for that visibility. So they might just distribute in their area and then like, you know, four key markets. Or then there are other breweries that just expand, 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 expand. So what, what does that look like for you guys? Is that, like I said, is that really part of your world? Um, yeah, tangentially, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say Jailbreak in particular is not interested in um, unlimited, kind of unfettered expansion. Um, a lot of, I think these guys would both agree, they've probably, they've, we've all been in beer long enough where we've seen larger regional craft breweries ex- overextend themselves to only retract. Um, it's really hard to pull out of a market when you've invested so much time, energy, and money, personnel, etc. Um, and you'll upset a bunch of customers. You'll upset a bunch of customers. Um, and they also both know that um, people really enjoy the idea of local um, as, a, as a philosophy with respect to craft beer. So um, people now, there's almost 10,000, like, or there's almost 10,000 breweries when you say uh, the ones that are currently operating and the ones that I've filed um, with the federal government to operate. So breweries and planning, um, it's close to, that combo's close to 10,000, if not over 10,000. Um, there's market saturation everywhere. Um, so pre-existing breweries like Jailbreak are now, if they're smart, I think they're more concerned with um, kind of an inch wide and a mile deep as opposed to a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, so what are we drinking here? Um, this is the 2019 uh, Dust Till Dusk. It is a blend of various barrel-aged imperial stouts. Um, there are 16 individual um, spirit barrels blended into this particular blend. Um, several different imperial stouts. And then there is a little bit of English barley wine in this beer as well. Um, all of it's barrel-aged in a combination of uh, many different types of rum or uh, I should say bourbon, some Jamaican rum barrels, um, a bourbon barrel that previously held maple syrup. There's a little bit of that thread in here, and then some uh, rye whiskey uh, barrelage beers as well. Yeah. No, I'd, eat it, I'd, I'd drink this with pancakes, for sure. Yeah. This yeah. beer is insane. Yeah. I, I mean, this is incredible. Uh, I'm going to run out and buy some immediately and break my resolution to <laughs> not buy beer this year. Come I mean, on, man. Just thick... Uh, just deep flavors, layers of complexity of the barrel. No adjuncts in this? No adjuncts. It's it, just barrel-aged blended beer. It tastes like a liquid brownie. Everyone needs to try this beer. This is amazing. How? What's the ABV? Um, I think it's 14.4%. Svelte 14.1%. <laughs> oh, excuse me. That was last year, I believe. This is 14.1%. Oh, okay. Um, so we do have a, a... For a brewery of our size, we do about 6,500 barrels a year. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a fairly sophisticated lab setup um, in terms of being able to do QAQC, check for uh, 
we do like it's called micro testing so we'll test for all kinds of various bacteria uh, various wild yeast strain Britannomyces yeast strains um, another one that's kind of a hot flavor now is a particular mutation of uh, the normal ale yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae um, called uh, diastaticus we test for that as well um, but we don't have an alkalizer an alkalizer would be the instrument necessary to um, test ABV that is a I mean, you can test any beer with an alkalizer to determine its ABV, but um, for a beer that's been in barrels for this long, mm -hmm. there's a few threads that are like almost four years old, which give almost like an umami characteristic, um, but that might be like 15 or 20% of the overall blend. Um, but nonetheless, like the barrels um, consume some of the, or the, the beer takes, leaches out some of the pre existing spirit, which adds to the ABV. And because of the porosity of the wood, it, some of it evaporates over time. So some of that water out of the liquid will evaporate, will, which will also increase the ABV. So if I had to guess, the, the beers themselves, if you wanted to do the math, would probably be in the 12% 12, 12 range. But mm -hmm. all of the combination of factors will increase that um, to 14.1. We have a few friends at um, the... Baltimore Guinness facility who um, actually we use their alkalizer to test the ABV so oh, we ran, nice. ran some samples up there they gave us some beer we gave them some beer and it's a great I, I, I went up there and got like the brewery tour and everything like that and tried a bunch of fun beers that they were making it's a really fun spot and it's like almost like part brewery part museum it's like a it's a the beer version of an amusement park in my opinion yeah <laughs> Those are some of the best tours. I, yep. Best brewery tour I've ever been on was Anheuser-Busch. I'm not ashamed to say it. it. Just at that scale, you've got yeah. lager tanks that are the length of a football field. It's just, we've all been on the small microbrewery tour before a hundred times. You haven't been on a, a macro Massive. tour unless you've been to one of those. The coolest brewery tour I was ever on was actually Rodenbach because it was shooters. just like, yeah, the fooders, but then also the fooder workshop. Like I was, but then they do like, they do like a uh, little like light up displays, like educational and stuff like that. And they actually, it, you almost feel like you're on like a, like a Disney tour, but for beer. And it's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> but it's like, you just look at it, it's like a sea, sea of fooders and you're just floored. What's your, what's your best brewery tour? Uh, you were uh, talking about Guinness. I, I don't know if this would be the, my, my all time favorite, but. Uh, it was just, I was blown away by the production, I guess I call it the production value of everything there. The, you know, it's just so much different mass media. Like, they, you know, you walk into a room that's all about like the water that they're using. And it's like waterfalls everywhere. And you walk through another room where they talk about like toasting the malt and it feels like you're in an oven. And it was like all sensory experience. And then, you know, you go and try a beer and then there's like a Irish dance thing that happens in the middle of it. <laughs> It really did feel like a, an adult amusement park uh, at, at the end of it. You know, you got the perfect pour of Guinness on, like, the rooftop, and you can see all over Dublin, and so definitely uh, worth the 40 euros or whatever it costs. Uh, not cheap, but, but worth it uh, to do that tour. Every so often, though, you get, like, a really, you get a craving for, like, a proper pour of Guinness. Oh, yeah. Then you go to Boundary Stone, and you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... For the listeners who want to kind of start getting into homebrew, um, 
first I would recommend attending the DC Homebrewers Club. You guys yep. are an open club. You can just show up yep. and everyone is super nice and sweet and awesome. Absolutely encourage you to, to show up and, and ask questions because how what what your you know kitchen set up and your house set up and your other people you're living with set up, uh, those will all impact the type of um, equipment you should start out with. You know, if you're in a tiny one-bedroom studio, you should not start out in a 10-gallon, you know, multi-vessel system. That's just silly. Yeah. Uh, But they can come and, like, try some homebrew and ask tons of questions. Exactly. you know, chances are you may or may not get invited to somebody's brew day. Right. You absolutely. Yeah. People are, are usually very excited to have somebody new stop by for a brew day. And uh, the, the club also will, will do a learn to homebrew day uh, once a year. And we do, you know, occasionally we'll have kind of demo days where we'll go and brew at uh, like just have a homebrew day at, you know, three stars or, um, you know, different events. Um you guys have a competition coming up, right? We do have a competition coming up. Uh, the annual uh, Cherry Blossom competition, which is always uh, you know, during Cherry Blossom time here in D.C. Um, that's not really kind of open to the public, but everybody's open to submit their beers um, and get them judged by um, certified beer judges. And, uh, you know, we have lots of prizes for, you know, around that. And uh, we even, you know, we'll get entries from all around the world the world, the international entries even, mm-hmm. um, but of course we, we love to get entries from uh, the local area as well, um, and we have a kind of a special cherry blossom category for that, that competition where we encourage people to use uh, flower-derived um, ingredients, which of course includes flowers themselves, but also uh, fruit or cherries, um, you know, just to kind of get, get things in the, the cherry blossom spirit in yeah. D.C. at the, you know, the end of March, early, April, or, uh, early April. Um, you know, who knows this year? Or, you year. know, January. Yeah, yeah this year uh, could be, it could be late January. But. Oh, that's terrifying. But what is open to the public is our April meeting, uh, which is, we call spring cleaning. Uh, mm-hmm. So pull out those beers in the back of your closet that you forgot about, but then also the leftovers from the competition. Right. Um, and it's always, it's like a homebrew roulette, pull a random bottle out, check it against the code. Oh, this is a buck. Okay, let's try it. Yeah. Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're not so great, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And we do have a meeting coming up in uh, in a few weeks, January 26th. Mm-hmm. This is actually going to be our 12th anniversary meeting. The dirty uh, dozen. Yeah. Whoa, so, congratulations. Yeah, yeah 12, uh, 12 years for DC Homebrewers, which is uh, kind of insane that it's been going on that long. But uh, it's going to be our high-gravity meeting. So that's always a fun, slightly dangerous meeting, but always yeah. a good time. It's Uber gonna, there. Yeah. Uber, fortunately, it is uh, going to be metro accessible at nice. uh, Blue Jacket. Yep. Probably okay. be in the tasting right, room again, right 6 the p.m., yard. January 26th. Yep, bring your high-gravity beers or just show up and help us drink them because we always bring too much beer and need the help. That's totally fair. Uh, and Rob, you got anything exciting going on at Jailbreak? This is like your, your plug moment. Exciting time um, right here on Beer Me Radio. Well, this uh, the beer we had, the Dust Old Dust, came out right before Christmas. Okay. Um, so that was fairly recent. Um there's always projects being worked on though so um right now i'm kind of focusing on like barrel sourcing for more barrel aged beers um so that is kind of like it is kind of like the equivalent of like you know searching for the sexy hops online like just okay what this particular store is going to get their galaxy drop uh you know next week all right you got to set an alarm to (laughs) make sure to get the order in um 
it's kind of like that to source barrels sometimes. Um, it's so important, though. It's so important. Uh, it kind of gotten to the point where, like, oh, um, if you know, like, the third-party vendor and how they store the barrels once they get them from the distillery, that often means more than, like, the particular barrel itself. Um, how do they need to be stored that, you know, so Ideally, that they're safe? Uh, temperature-controlled and humidity-controlled okay. uh, warehouse. So they're not just like dumped outside in the warehouse and like left to the to the weather. That's exactly when I don't want to use a barrel. Yes. Um, that happens. It do, It yes. happens a lot, and sometimes um, that's one of the reasons why rum barrels are often difficult to uh, work with, uh, especially Jamaican rum barrels. They have a tendency to sit in a warehouse that is not humidity or temperature controlled for months at a time mm-hmm. before they get to the U.S. and then. Um, which usually means they're very hard to seal uh, once because the barrel itself is contracted so much uh, by not having liquid in it. I'm picturing this like barrel buying process, like the same way you get like a pedigree kind of thing. Like, you know, this barrel is sourced from Evan Williams. (laughs) It was stored in a area, temperature control. Like, do they actually give you like a full little paragraph right out? Not really. His name is Chad. (laughs) Especially if you get it. I mean, a lot of breweries um, get Barrels from third-party vendors who specialize in... Uh, so, like, barrel brokers. Exactly. So... All right. Still, to this day, the majority of bourbon barrels in the U.S. get sent to Scotch distilleries in Scotland, but um, as soon as the popularization of bourbon barrel-aged beers kind of became a thing, like, these guys know, too, like, even smaller barrels that homebrewers could use, like, the prices have gone up a lot. Uh. Um so, like, barrels for breweries have, are probably four times more expensive than they were 10 years ago, um, which is part of the reason why uh, barrel-aged beers are, are expensive um, to make, and it, it is a labor of love. Like, Well, it's taking yeah. up space, it's taking up time, yep. and then now they're becoming more and more expensive to source. So. Right, we don't really make, we barely break even on this beer, mm-hmm. selling it at $30, a four pack of 12 ounce cans so um it's it's about the beer itself and then okay if we can you know part of it is like we make money on certain things we break even on certain things and we lose money on other things and the balance of that is hopefully profit right hopefully or <laughs> getting there getting, getting closer there. to it all right well thank you all for being here in the studio today i really appreciate your time I will definitely have to have you back because homebrew topics are always very fun for me. Uh, Listeners, thank you so much. Uh, We're going to take off next week, but we'll be back um, talking about some more beer. Uh, So this has been Beer Me on Full Service Radio, recorded live at the Line Hotel in Adams, Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Cheers. 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 Cheers.